So, Berto, I'm pretty sure you have the sort of anxiety that when you go to sleep at night, it's hard for you to fall asleep because you worry about things. Am, am I remembering right? Oh, interesting that you remember it that way. I remember you saying, like, you don't want to go to bed. True. Once I'm sleepy, I can fall asleep pretty easily most nights. Okay. But it's the, it's the actual, okay, I'm going to bed. Because you that don't want to miss out. It's like I don't want to miss out. It's FOMO. Yeah. Okay. So you don't have the sort of anxiety that when your head hits the pillow, you yeah. start worrying. Sometimes about it happens, but often I just. You know? oh, okay. But but it's I just don't even want to get in bed because I'm still like the night's not over, man. Yeah. What sound do you make when you fall asleep? Well, anyway, a listener wrote in and wanted us to talk about the fear of sleep or. Uh, and the broader concept of death anxiety. So I thought we would talk about that today. Narcophobia or something? Um, God, what is it? Well, you know, I, you know, I hate all those words, you know, because <laughs> just call it fear of sleep. Okay. You know, we don't need to make up, you know, it's like arachnophobia. Just call it fear of spiders. You know, Do you have etym- etymology phobia. Exactly. It's because <laughs> it's like in order for it to sound legit or something, we need to invent this word, which, you know, I just want to tell the listeners, which I've told before, none of those words exist in the actual diagnostic <laughs> statistical manual. It doesn't, it's not a real word. It's just, it's just a, word that someone made up it's and it's just latin it's just it's just latin for the same thing in english so just so let's just stop that <laughs> this is the podcast called psychology in seattle and i'm your host dr kirk honda i am a professor and a therapist my name is umberto castaneda i teach hot tennis this episode is just for patrons of the podcast so the content will end before <laughs> wait so this episode's going to end before the content begins, unless you're listening to the premium feed I see. and you're a, a patron of the podcast. So, so a little tease. Yeah. So this is a little tease, teaser. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast. And actually, as I say this, I think the listener who wrote in is not a patron of the podcast. So, so listener Hannah, you know, become a patron of the podcast so you can listen to You know to what the this. heck we said about what you asked. <laughs> yeah. But so in this episode, we're going to talk about the fear of sleeping. We're going to talk about some research, and we're going to talk about the treatment of it. And I actually suffer personally from a minor version of this. Essentially, it's the fear of like your head hits the pillow, and you suddenly are afraid of being unconscious. <gasps> oh, it's it's a fear of becoming unconscious, and a lot of people actually suffer from this. It's not talked about enough, and so I wanna I wanna talk about it. You know, I have had that a couple times last year. I, I think. It was due to health concerns. So then that would make it so that I would be concerned, like you said, to to go unconscious, to fall asleep. Because I'm like, what if I don't wake up? Right. But it wasn't like a recurring thing. It was just like, I'm like, I feel ill. So, ah. Uh, well, know. so that's a yeah. smaller version of it yeah. or a isolated version yeah. of it. But yeah, okay. This is where we will end the teaser. Well, that was a great podcast. <laughs> All right, this is the patron zone. Thank you very much for being a patron. You guys are rad. This email is from listener Hannah. She says, Doctor, Dear Dr. Honda, I am an avid listener. In a recent episode, you mentioned some of your experience with death anxiety. I really struggle with this, especially at night when all the lights are off and I'm trying to go to sleep and I will find myself having a crippling panic attack just thinking about it. It's the thought of not having any consciousness and not ever existing again that gets me the most. 
Could you maybe make an episode about it? How, how, did, how did you overcome it? She asked me. Thank you so much for creating such a wonderful podcast, which is not only educational, but also entertaining. I love the episodes discussing Game of Thrones and Pokemon Go. Do you realize you're traumatizing her? Because she was sitting there listening to the teaser, yeah. and all of a sudden she ceased to exist. Yeah. And um, maybe you could make this one episode available just to her, just so she gets her... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because otherwise I was going to talk bad about her behind her back. Yeah, I'll send the okay. episode to her. Okay, so this is what we call a fear of sleep, and it's often considered a form of death anxiety. It's like a, like a sub-form oh. or a related form to death anxiety. Because death anxiety actually encompasses not just anxiety about death, but like fear of annihilation and, and being just lost, you know, to the, to the universe. So this book you have on death and dying. Yeah. My, my dad had that book. Yeah. It's a very popular book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So it was always on, on his, um, on his, uh, well, if you look at my, you know, I'm writing a book on grief. And so Uh if you can see what I have on my desk, it's just, (laughs) it's a shit ton of books of people who look at that just stack. They say it's my depressive (laughs) bookshelf. Are you okay? Yeah, pretty much. But so he had that. Read some of the, read some of the titles. Okay. So I see, uh, divorce or not. And then, um, which is Joe Shaw, which was on the show. How not to die. How not to die. How we die. (laughs) Um, staring at the sun. Okay, that one could be positive, but <laughs> Handbook of Bereavement, Dying. There's one called Dying. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> but anyway so my, my dad had that book on his shelf, and I always remember seeing it, and I, I always thought of it as, so it says, On Death and Dying. So I interpreted the title as uh, whoever's writing the book or, or the, the voice of that title is On Death, meaning they're on death. On top and of on top of that, dying. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, They're standing on death why? like Grim Reaper, <laughs> yeah. Grim Reaper and they're dying. That's right. I was on like, death why and is, dying. Why is this happening to these? And, <laughs> you know, I didn't get it. The, it. the topic of the book was on death. That's funny. And dying. <laughs> okay. So there's lots of literature and research on the topic of death anxiety and the fear of sleep. So it's impossible to summarize all of it. Philosophers have been writing about it since the beginning of the written word, and all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Yeah, but they're dead now. Yeah. In psychology, there was a big jump in the 1970s up to present day on death anxiety and the fear of sleep. So it's, it's, it's a very recent topic within psychology and psychotherapy. Here's another account from the internet, just to give you another story of someone else who has this fear of sleep. I'm 21 years old, and all I can think about every hour of every day is the fact that I'm not going to be able to sleep at night. For as long as I can remember, I've been incredibly afraid of going unconscious because of the lack of control. Even when I do manage to fall asleep, I wake up three hours later and just can't seem to do it again. I sit there thinking every night, when is my brain going to shut down? I honestly feel as though my life is now ruined and I'm screwing up at work, I can't go to school, etc. I honestly don't know what to do. Following proper sleeping habits hasn't helped me at all. I'm not sure what to do. No doctor I've ever been to has ever been able to fully understand what I'm going through. Oh, my God. End of quote. Yes, yeah, so this is very common. It's horrible. actually It's actually pretty, uh, it's, a, it's a fairly common condition, you know. Uh, surprisingly common, I think, to, to many. And 
it, it's it's terrible that physicians and frankly psychotherapists don't know that much about it. When because I've suffered from a minor version of this, or let's just say a version of it, I make it a point to tell as you know I'm chair of a program and I'm also a professor and a supervisor. I make sure to like educate other therapists about it so right. that when they come across it, they don't just call it just they don't just poo 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 it. I actually had a therapist who once just said, oh. You're just talking about death anxiety, right? Uh, <laughs> like as as if it was no big deal. Like, right, oh, you're right. just talking about death. Oh, yeah, anxiety. you're just <laughs> you're just deathly afraid of dying. <laughs> yeah, and so it, many therapists have no empathy for it or no context for it. Or that like everyone dies. Come yeah, on, it's like oh, it's like a fear of spiders, right? Like oh, no big deal. <laughs> and and but even oh, fear uh, of spiders can be developed. Oh, of course, yeah. No, I so I I think I've talked about it before in the podcast, but uh, I used to have a real like freezing fear of spiders because um, do you remember the, do you remember the story why this happened? No. When I was five living in New York, one night I was having this very elaborate, vivid dream that I still kind of remember and I was trapped in this web and this giant car-sized tarantula was trying to devour me. So very like scary, right? For a five-year-old, can you imagine, you know? And then I wake up and as I, it's in the middle of the night and as I open my eyes, there was a little spider on my pillowcase, like right by my head. Now, it wasn't a tarantula, but let me tell you, it, waking up from that dream, seeing a freaking spider, <laughs> I screamed bloody murder. My dad rushed thinking there was some robber trying to break. He's like, what's happening? And I'm like, a spider. And then he's like, what? Don't be ridiculous. But that left me traumatized. Yeah. To the point where I nowadays I've overcome it, but for for even when I was in my twenties, I remember I was living in a in a in a place, and then I saw, like, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a black thing, and I looked over, and it looked like the size of my hand or something. I'm sure it was way smaller than that, but um, I was paralyzed. I had to have my roommate like deal with it, you know, and and it was it was really really frightening. Right. So there's many stories like that for people. And when you're traumatized in those sorts of ways, and you can be traumatized in all social ways, like I was mildly traumatized with claustrophobia at once. I didn't have claustrophobia, and then I was stuck. I fell asleep in the back seat of of a very small car, <laughs> a small Honda Civic, like one of the original Honda Civics. Like Honda Civics today are luxurious, <laughs> yeah. humongous cars compared to the original Honda Civics. I was in the back seat, and I'm my knees are completely locked in, and I fell asleep. And then when I woke up, I was all hot and sweaty, and all I wanted to do was stretch my legs. You know what I mean? I, yeah. just, I just wanted to just kind of, and I I couldn't. You couldn't. There, there was no way I could stretch my legs. And and I'm thinking, okay, well we're almost home, so I just need to kind of, I just need to like hold out for like five minutes. And then we got to our destination. And a friend of mine, who whom you know, I was like, I was like, oh god, I gotta get out of this car, like, oh, god. And he and he was, and so he purposely like wouldn't let me out of the car. Oh my god! <laughs> and and I and I had a mild panic, you know, where I was just like, and I just started freaking out, and I started I started climbing. Like, Does his name starts with start with an H? Head first over the 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 seat and got out, and then. That that developed into because uh, that just that oh you know that ex, that very short experience yeah triggered enough trauma in me to create a sort of progression 
to the point where I couldn't get on airplanes anymore. Oh my god! Uh, I'm I'm better now. Yeah, and but I still like I got a friend of mine, Lita, actually, yeah. her house in Austin, Texas, has an elevator. So it's a very small, janky elevator. Oh no! Like the smallest, <laughs> jankiest, slowest elevator of all time. And I got in there with a crowd of people, and I'm like, I should have taken the stairs. This is this is not a good scene. Mm. Uh, that happened to me in Japan too. There's some very small buildings that are just like as big as this room, and it's like. Ten, <laughs> 10 stories high and so their elevators are naturally very very small <laughs> oh my god and so, so you couldn't sleep in one of those little uh drawers that they have where you yeah. go and you put yourself in the drawer and you <laughs> no i actually did sleep in in the like what do they call it the i can't remember what they call those hotels oh, but I they're could, actually pretty big uh, you can actually that. sit up in those things really yeah they're not they're not small i still couldn't have <laughs> the, the problem with sleeping there is that you're essentially you're essentially in a bunk in a room with 30 other guys. Ah! And there's no door that ah. that lets out, you know. It's yeah. it's just a it's just like a like a mat that is just for privacy. And so if anyone in that room snores, then you're screwed. It's over. So I did not get a single wink of sleep that Jeez. night. Anyway. Uh so, fear of sleep. This is what the listener suffers from. And what I'll say is, it's it's a totally rational fear to me. <laughs> yeah. It, to you can't protect yourself while you're asleep. Oh, okay. So you, you know one thing that was happening to me. This is related to what I was saying last year. So I had started snoring. Yeah. And I I didn't used to snore, and I had started snoring. And I looked into it, and at first I thought, well, I, had, I guess lots of people snore. But then I started reading about it. Sleep started, apnea. Yeah, I started reading about how it could lead to like heart disease and all these other things. Brain damage. And, and I got really scared. Yeah. So I started reading online every possible thing I could do to stop snoring, right? And then at the at, in the evenings, I started getting that fear of like, oh my gosh, what if I snore tonight and I don't get a good sleep and then I get sleep apnea? What if I don't wake up? And, what I, and that's what started escalating for right, me. Right, because you hear with sleep apnea, you'll have periods of time where you're not breathing. Yeah. You're essentially suffocating. Right. And you can have brain cell death. Wait, say that slowly. <laughs> so, so yeah. So there's a total rationality to the fear in some ways. You can't protect yourself while you're asleep. You can't even guarantee that you're going to wake up. I, a, f- a friend of mine, her her mother just died in her sleep last night. Actually, <gasps> oh my god, she was she was in her seventies, but. The 70s is not that old these days. No, and no known cause. Like, she didn't have yeah. any heart disease or anything. She just died in her sleep last oh, night. Oh, no. And so, you know, when you fall asleep, not to make anyone yeah. af- too afraid, but I'll get into this in a second, is like, you know, people die in their sleep. Lots of things shut down. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a fear of the unknown. You know, it's like, well, what lies beyond? I don't right. know. What lies beyond? And, and by the way, it's it's you might have gonna be talking about this, but it's very interesting that we don't fear not being alive in the past. Yeah, I don't even even mean before we were born. That's its own thing. Yeah. But like we're no longer alive from yesterday. Yeah, that we're not there anymore. Right. 
but we, we don't fear that. You know, we don't fear not being that person anymore, not being there anymore. Yeah. We only fear not being there tomorrow. <laughs> right. And we'll get into some of that in a second. Um, I'm just adding to this in terms of, you know, fear of sleep apnea, fear of nightmares, fear of missing an important phone call, some people will say, or fear of, I guess, maybe getting that important text. You know, what if someone, what if someone texts me in the middle of the night? Fear of sleepwalking. Oh, you mean that that might keep them awake? Right. So they're, they're oh. afraid of falling asleep because they're afraid that they might miss something. Or okay. They're afraid they might sleepwalk or they're, they're okay. afraid they're going to have sleep apnea or something. Okay. So, because in my case, not the sleep apnea stuff, but the other thing you were asking me about first, that was not, um, I'm afraid to go to sleep because I'll miss out. It was, I don't want to even start the process of right. trying to go to sleep right. because the, I don't want the day to end. Right. So it's, it's like, but it's related to that fear yeah. because the day ending means it's one day out, uh, right. out of the way towards my eventual death. It's still right. related to that. Yeah. And by the way, when you don't get good sleep at night, that increases your anxiety, which makes you more likely to be right. afraid. About. So just some other kinds of death anxiety that I want to talk about. People just have a general fear of one's death. They might have a fear of being killed by somebody. Some people have a particular kind of death anxiety where they're afraid of the unpredictability of death, not knowing when it's going to happen. So if if you told them you're going to die in 10 years on this day, they would actually be relieved because <sighs> they're not worried about when it's going to happen. Right. Um, a lot of people have a fear of annihilation after death. You know, if, 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 if you don't believe in a heaven or a re- reincarnation... You're just, you just don't exist after death, and that's, that can be terrifying to some people. And as you're saying, well, you, you weren't worried about not existing prior to being born, but, you know, these aren't exactly like, you can't really wrestle with these easily, yeah. you know? Well, and, and we're just conditioned to be in a forward motion in time. Well, and to preserve our lives, and yeah. frankly, to be interested in life. I mean, to lose the ability to live, to lose the ability to have fun in life or experience life, you know, that's, that's a terrifying thing to just, to just be shut off and fall into the abyss right. and never exist again to me is a total normal thing to worry yeah. about. Well, it's sad because you got to experience being alive and then, ah, oh, damn it. You're not right. going to never it. lived. Then, well, yeah. then it wouldn't matter. But what, what about, something. what about the fear of, let's say you are religious and you fear the afterlife. Right. Is that a thing too? Yeah, so you can fear going to hell or purgatory or whatever, being reincarnated as an ant or something. But even for people who believe in a, for Christians who believe in a heaven, they don't know for sure, right? You know, they're not 100%. Otherwise, to me, it's like they would act differently in, in, my, in my view. If, if, if people really were 100% about heaven, 100%, like just totally convinced. Right. You know, that would really change things, I would think. Which I I I have a a bad example of that or a scary example is in fact uh a lot of the suicide bombers they they get conditioned to a point right. where they actually really believe it. Right. 100%. Right. So they, they, there's there's accounts of them having smiles on their faces as they as they're about to detonate. Because. Right. I mean, it's a scary example. There's plenty of other people. Most people who believe in heaven aren't going to do that. And they're just, you know... Anyway, so the point is, is that I know people who are staunch believers in Christianity and a heaven, and when I talk to them, they will say, well, 
what if there isn't a heaven? <laughs> you know, you know, there's there's just that fear. You just don't know. And so, uh, and obviously, if you're an atheist, you know, it's a terrifying end to some extent. Uh, also, but, uh, yeah, just just grief of of losing somebody. Um, you know, when you lose someone, someone dies that's close to you. That kind of is is traumatizing in some way and makes you afraid of death in general. People tend to have an increase in a fear of death after someone close to them dies. Or if someone dies very quickly, like this friend of mine, her mother died very quickly. You know, my friend of mine is likely, might develop death anxiety to just be like, wait, right. so anyone can go to sleep and just die in the middle of the night? I mean, right. you know, that's terrifying. Also, many have written about it, including Freud, Eric Erickson, uh, Heidegger, Rollo May, Frankel, Kohut, and, you know, going all the way back to the Greeks, like I said. Many people suffer from death anxiety. Um, to most authors in our field, it's a universal phenomenon. They will say that this, it's not just, you know, some people have death anxiety. They will say everyone has some fear of death. Everyone has some fear of, of dying. Um, and existential therapists believe death anxiety to be the primary source of our problems. So research, tougher bluff, Berto. A belief in God reduces death anxiety. What do you think? A belief in God reduces death anxiety. Tough or bluff? Um, bluff. It's tough. Why do you say bluff? Oh, I, I, I guess I was thinking that. Well, I, you know, I grew up Catholic, and man, I there's so many things to be afraid of regarding the afterlife and how you might come up to it at the wrong time, and you might not have repented enough, and and I mean, if you believe in hell, yeah. It's an infinity of like the ultimate, like the infinite yeah. torment. Like, so, I mean, I'd be, I'm surprised. I guess people are just too optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they believe that. They must think God highly has, of themselves. God has their back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And these might have been American subjects too. So maybe they're not quite as. America. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of talk about, there's not as much, I'm guessing, talk about hell among evangelicals. So maybe there is. Yeah. That's a good. Tougher bluff. Tougher buff, awareness and ability to reflect on mortality, on one's mortality, increases death anxiety. So awareness of your own mortality and the ability to reflect on your mortality increases death anxiety. Tougher bluff, Berto. Tough. Why do you say that? Awareness, um, because, you know, I'm just using my anecdotal evidence for myself. As a kid, um, I, you know, you don't have as many aches and pains and there's not as many people dying all around you that you're close to and so you don't really think about it as much and then as you get older and your grandparents start dying and then your parents might die or people you know might die and then you start getting aches and pains and then you go to the doctor and they tell you your blood pressure is elevated or whatever and then you start thinking about it a lot right so i'm gonna summarize the next two tougher bluffs because it's it just will lend itself to me summarizing it um, it's kind of tough or bluff. So basically, according to the research that I read, when you're in complete denial of death mm-hmm. and you, you don't think about it, you, don't think, you just don't acknowledge it at all, mm-hmm. then, you don't have very, then you tend not to have a lot of death anxiety. If you're kind of aware of your own death, but you don't think a lot about it and you don't reflect on it, then that's your highest category of people who have a lot of prevalence of death anxiety. But if you're very aware of your mortality and you spend a, a fair amount of time reflecting on that death, 
then you're back down to the original ah. prevalence of people who are in complete denial. Okay. So the trick is either be in complete denial <laughs> or think a lot about it. But <laughs> or don't... stay up all night long thinking about it. Right. And you'll have no anxiety. <laughs> Tougher bluff. More self-actualized people have... So people who are more self-actualized. So self-actualized people have less death anxiety. What do you think, Berto? Tougher bluff. Self-actualized meaning that they, they feel they've reached key life goals, that yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, they've they've okay. actualized the self. Uh, I would actually go bluff. Uh, they have less? You said they have less? They have less. I'm going to say bluff. Yeah? It's it, tough. You've gotten all of them wrong so okay, far. Okay, I, and I hear you. I, I assumed it was tough, but here's why I was going on a tangent there. Yeah. I was thinking, people that don't accomplish much in life, they're probably like, I don't know, just another day, another dollar, one day I'll die, who cares? If you've accomplished a lot, you might start being like, but I could do so much more. <laughs> but that's not self-actualized. That's someone who well, has, fine, whatever. Has, has not yet self-actualized. Is anyone self-actualized? Well, you know, it's a very squishy topic, but um, there is some research on that. Tougher bluff. The older you are, the more likely you will have death anxiety. Tougher bluff. The older you are, the more likely you will have death anxiety. Tough. Tough. You've gotten all of them wrong so far, and so that trend has continued. It's bluff. What? It's the opposite. It actually. Come on. So when you're very young, you don't have much at all because you're not yeah. thinking about. It. But as soon as you hit adulthood, you have your highest rates of well, yeah. death anxiety. That's and older. as you get older, oh. it, it decreases over time. All right, fine. So young adults have the most. Middle-aged people have middle, and elderly people have the least amount of. Death so anxiety. I wonder what, like, you know. I've been talking to my dad, and he's definitely starting to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to... Yeah. Well, you know, we had one cold day, so global warming doesn't exist, right? That's right. So, tough or bluff? There is no gender difference regarding death anxiety. Tough or bluff? You've gotten them all wrong so far. (laughs) Bluff. You're right. Yeah! (laughs) Women... Uh, are more likely to ha- slightly more likely to have it, but no way. I see. I would have said. I see. I would have said the other way around. You know, <laughs> it, it, when it comes to gender research, it's hard to oh, know because men and women are socialized differently and might respond to self reports differently. You know, maybe women are more likely to admit to having a fear than than men I are. See. So, but so there's a slight difference. There's plenty of. It's something like a 55-45 thing. I see. Okay. So to me, as I was saying earlier, death anxiety is a normal part of life because we all die. Whether we believe in an afterlife or not, we all die from a very early age, some, some from a very early age, but all of us by a certain point have to confront that reality. Maybe we get in a car accident or maybe... We have a lump somewhere, and we think, oh, my God, I have cancer. This is the end. Or maybe someone in our family dies, and we think, wait, so I could die one day. Or the family pet dies, and you're five years old, and you're thinking, yeah. wait, so that means we're all going to die? We all have to face that. And so it's a, it's a terrifying thing, and you know, there are very rare individuals, I think, that don't have horror and terror around their own death. And to me, those people probably at some point did have terror, and they just got over it. So when listener Hannah writes in about this fear of annihilation that she has, 
I consider it to to be a normal progression of of awakening to reality. When we're young, we're shielded from that information. You know, people typically don't expose us to that. Right. Or at the very least, it just doesn't come around. And then at a certain point in life, we have to think, wait a second, so one day I'm going to die, and and that could happen at any time. And, you know, we have to wrestle with that. And there's various different approaches that I've seen. What kind of approaches have you seen, Berto, to this death anxiety? Well, um, you know, th- there are some people that live, uh, stereotypically, I will say, moment to moment. Yeah. And uh, they, you know, I have kind of a friend like that, but they, they'll, they'll travel on a whim. Like, they'll just go, because their philosophy is, well, you never know when you're going to, you know, and they'll take risks. And I've asked them, like, dude, that's risky. It's like, oh, you never know when you're going to die anyway. So, and it's kind of like this, they know it's going to happen. They don't care, at least on the surface. And so, they, they'd rather squeeze in, like basically keep playing, keep betting on red, keep betting on red because they haven't lost yet and they want to stay at the table. Whereas other people are like, and this, I'm definitely more like this. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to go skydiving. I'm definitely not going bungee jumping. I'm not going to ride a motorcycle. Uh, now I might take other stupid, stupid risks, but not because I consciously decided to take a stupid risk just because of bad habits and things like that. But uh, I will not take like a conscious uh, risk because I'm like, no, 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 no. Got to extend the possibilities. You know, I'm, I am trying to maximize my odds at the tables. Yeah. Okay. So, so those are different approaches. I, uh, with the categories I came up with, it's hard for me to know which ones to put those in. But the categories that I've seen people in professionally and personally are the following. The first one is total avoidance, total denial. And I'm not, going to put any um, value judgment on any of these. Everyone is free to decide right. what they want to do. You just order them from worse to better. That's right. <laughs> so there's complete avoidance and denial. There's some people that when I ask them about their fear of death or something or when I interact with them, it just seems like they choose either unconsciously or consciously to just never think about it. Yeah. No, I've gotten that answer. Like, I just don't think about that stuff. Yeah, I don't think about that. Yeah. Uh, Another approach is solace in religion or a spiritual belief. You know, you could say, oh my God, I'm going to die. But God has a plan. Sure. God is watching. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good person. I've, I've been baptized. I've, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. Or, you know, a lot of Seattleites, because they're not religious, they're more spiritual, they'll say, well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure, like, we're all the, one. The universe will take me back yeah. or I'll, you know, I'll integrate with the universe. You know, you hear a lot of beliefs like that. Um, another th- another th- uh, approach is just ongoing terror. I, I know people who, you know, approach their death anxiety by just basically being terrified all, yeah, all the time. Yeah, I have a friend like that who is constantly thinking about it and constantly just afraid of it. Right. And without without a way of getting out of that, I guess. So they're in a, in eternal suffering without any way of getting out of it. Um, another approach is substance abuse. There are plenty of people who you know can numb their feelings through alcohol or marijuana or whatever. 
Um, there's intellectualization. They will learn a lot about philosophy. They'll study, you know, Nietzsche, and they'll they'll read the Greeks, and they'll think about death, and they'll put a bunch of books on their shelf about death, and they'll write a book about grief. You know, they'll yep. they'll be intellectual about it. And then the last one, which I consider to be the best approach, I think, is emotional and social processing. So you you feel the feelings. You know, to me, it's a grieving process that I'll get into later. Um, and then the last one I'm going to add, just from what you're saying, is like a like a, the, what I wrote down after you described your friend who skydives and that sort of thing. It's like approach death in the face by taking risky behaviors. Just yeah, like, just like fuck <laughs> you, death. Yeah, you you can't control me. And I, I think the one that I was saying about me. I don't know if it was one of your categories, but it's basically, it's, I'm not in denial. I'm, I'm in prevention mode. So it's the, I'm going to take all the supplements. I'm going to do all the research. How do I extend my life? You know, should I take res- resveratrol? Should I uh, not smoke? I will definitely not ride motorcycle. You know, those kind of things. Right. Right. So you're focused on extending life. Extending because, because, I, because the fear is definitely there. It's right. like, but it, yeah, so it's kind of a, kind of a version of denial. In a sense, because because you, you're still going to die, probably yeah, just five years later. Yeah, but it's 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 kind of like instead of saying I don't want to think about it, my thinking, and instead of being like oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, it's more like all right, I'm going to die, so I better start not dying as long as I can. <laughs> so it's giving you a sense of control. Yeah, yeah. Which sort of. of course you have no control over it. Yeah, like, hard to. Well, it, yes and no. Actually, so that that's an interesting point. So this is a this is an like you know as as we've seen now the American uh health system is tragically poor in the sense that uh we don't focus on prevention we don't focus on good eating habits and things like that on exercise only on on giving you pills that are expensive once you're already in pain and suffering or even helping people understand the fact that they're going to die <laughs> well, sure right but so the 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 point is actually there are a lot of ways in which the the U.S. and world population could extend. If not, you know, they can't live forever, but they they could live maybe even to the same age, but at a better quality of life, right? Yeah. And and so I think that that shouldn't be minimized. That there is actually a better way to like I spent the first like almost my entire life eating sugar, yeah, and I never knew that I wasn't supposed to eat sugar, right. Like sugar was supposed to be a good thing the whole time, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, you eat sugar, you're going to die. You don't eat sugar, you're still going to die. But that's not what the statistics say. That's my point. Statistically, people that don't do certain things live longer and live a healthier and life. And still die. Eventually, but not not as fast and not as painful. They don't get dementia. They don't get Alzheimer's. They don't get Parkinson's. They don't get... So the treatment for death anxiety, for suffering. Now, what I'll say is, is that, um, like I said earlier... Death anxiety is normal, so to treat it for some people is a bit silly because it's like, well, it's just how it is. It's just the way life is. But if it gets excessive and it gets in the way of your life or you're suffering too much, and this and or you just want to kind of progress down the road, I th- this is both a clinical and a philosophical approach. So the obvious things are cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, with cognitive therapy, it's like, is it really helpful that you are thinking about the fact that you're going to die 10 times a day? Is that, is that a helpful thing to do? 
and through mindfulness and other kind of cognitive therapy practices, you can direct your mind away from those thoughts or distract yourself to other thoughts or relegate those thoughts to a particular time of the week or something so that you're not in a constant state of fear and really depression because of the inevitability. You know, if you're, if you're always thinking about the fact, oh my God, I'm going to die, oh my God, I'm going to die, you know, that's, that's going to take a toll on you. And so cognitive therapy and mindfulness, mindfulness can help with that. Another form of therapy that might be helpful is trauma recovery. If you've been traumatized, like someone died close to you or your mom died suddenly in your sleep and, and you've been traumatized, and so that's why you're thinking about death a lot, you might have to recover from trauma through trauma therapy. Uh, for uh, the treatment of specifically fear of sleep, you want to improve your sleep hygiene. Uh, you want to have a sleep routine. It's very important, something I've learned personally within the last year or two is the importance of falling asleep at the same time every night and waking up at the same time every day. It is uh, very helpful to feeling uh, rested and having energy. Uh, Not always. Um, Other things are when your head hits the pillow, you might want to have a distraction, white noise or just something to kind of distract your mind. Horror movies. Horror movies. Well, literally, you know, because that might actually help you to to distract. Um. Here's the big thing that I tell people is if your head hits, because a lot of people, they don't have a fear of, they, they, they have something that interferes with them being able to fall asleep at night. And whether that's fear of sleep or just ruminating on the day, or some people will ruminate on things they said during the day and they'll think, oh my God, I can't believe they said that. Or they'll worry about the next day. And there's just a lot of anxiety. I have this theory and I have to look up the research. I don't know, but I have this theory that this hypothesis that when our head hits the pillow, our brain begins to shut down and our frontal lobe is probably the first to kind of start to shut down functioning. And our amygdala is just running rampant without any kind of checks and balances. And because for me, my anxiety is at its worst when my head hits the pillow. It's like all day long, I could just be totally fine, but my head hits the pillow and suddenly like something that wasn't bothering me is suddenly Mm. very much bothering me. I see. And so you need to have a cognitive practice and something that I've recommended to people that has worked, that have worked is find something to, to do with your mind that requires very little effort, but is focused enough so that you can focus on it. You know, in the past they would have said count sheep, you know, that doesn't work for me. Maybe it works for you. Does that work for you? No. What what works for you? Um, okay, what, a couple things that does a couple things that do work for me. One is do not look at my phone. So that's like a counter indication. Okay. Uh, I many many years ago, like fifteen years ago, I used to have a television in my room. Terrible idea. Okay. Okay. But then the thing that works for me on the positive side is meditation. Okay. Like seriously sitting down on the Making ground. Your mind blank. Uh, I do the whole repeat. I, I'm not as good at the blank thing yet, but I, I repeat the word or uh, a specific word over and over in my head. Okay. But I have to. I, I have to do it on the ground, sitting down, and practicing my breathing. If I do that, it more often than not helps me fall asleep. Yeah. But now, granted, I'm not a chronic sufferer, so I don't know. But th- yeah. but that's the thing. No, those yeah. I'm sure would work for other yeah. people too. What I do is. And lately, I haven't been having this problem, but in the past when I did, I would imagine winning the lottery, and then I would imagine spending that money. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Because, not because I have this sort of dream of winning the lottery, uh, but more of spending money requires no fear. There's no 
there's nothing, and there's no planning because you literally have like five hundred million dollars to spend. And <laughs> and when I have trouble falling asleep, is I think about, or if I have a fear, because I've had that fear of annihilation. I've had that fear of like unconsciousness. It's it's totally irrational for for those of you who don't have that fear. You're just like, why would you worry about falling asleep? You do it every night. What's the big deal? Yeah. But for those of no, you, no, I get it. I get but, it. Okay, so for those of you who've had similar anxieties, or you'll know that there's no rationalizing these these anxieties right. away. So a distraction would be to do something. I know a friend who thinks about having a superpower, like being super, nice. being Superman or something. What, what would I do? <laughs> right. I would. The first thing I'd do is I would break into a bank and take a million dollars. And the second thing I'd do is I would feel bad and give most of it to charity. And the third thing I'd do is I would you know, become invisible and walk into the girl's locker room. <laughs> and this fourth thing I do is I would feel guilty and I would never do that again. You know, like, and, and so you just walk yourself through. Is that I mean, a superpower? Feeling guilty? Yeah. It's guilt, man. <laughs> you just walk yourself through a, a meaningless, you know, just a, a trivial mind exercise, you know, because your brain will not be anxious about that. And, you will find that you'll fall asleep very readily. For instance, for me, the, mil- the, the lottery thing, I only spend my money on two or three things before I fall asleep. Like the, the next day I'll wake up and I'll be like, how many things did I get through? And it'll just be like a few things, you know? So, so, so that's another way to distract yourself from the fear of annihilation, the fear of, of unconsciousness. Um, another thing is to exercise every day. To when when we exercise, it it regulates our circadian rhythm, and when you when your head hits the pillow, you're much more likely to fall asleep very quickly. Actually, right. So so do you reduce you can reduce stress. Um, you can also try a sleep aid. Try medication. You know, uh, you don't want to abuse it. You don't want to try it forever. But for some people, they might need uh, a, a medication for a month just to sort of get them into a cycle. And then right. they can wean themselves off of it. Can they use the, you know, remember the cartoons where you'd have the hammer hit you yeah. on the head? Absolutely. Uh, just get a hammer, hit yourself in the head. Um, also, you can investigate it, the, that intellectual part of it. I have found for my anxieties that the more I learn about the anxiety, the far less I feel the anxiety. You know, for me, the thing... And the listener was asking how I cured myself of my death anxiety was I, cause I, I would, I would think about my death and worry of not worry about it, but just sort of like get depressed about it. Just be like me, I'm going to die. Everyone, I'm is going to die. Everyone I know is going to be dead. And I'm not sure if there's an afterlife or not. If there is, holy crap, how great is that? But what if there isn't? And just how sad that is. You know, we're all just running around, running errands, you know, trying to pay our bills. And, and then, you know, and then we just die. You know, it just seems so sad. And it, it was just very sad for me. And so right. I would think about that. And so that's a form of death anxiety. And, the, you know, and that's when I would talk to my therapist and she would say, oh, sounds like death. she's a great therapist in general, but she has no understanding. She apparently does not suffer from anything close to death anxiety <laughs> because she has no empathy for it. Can you imagine we're like, you know, we're in heaven, we meet up, you're like surprised that I'm there. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. I squeezed in at the last minute. And we're like, what do you want to do? It's like, should we go like eat? It's like, nah, we're not hungry anymore, remember? Yeah. What about clothes buying? Ah, we're naked. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do we do? 
Uh, I don't know. Com- compare dong size, maybe. Okay. Well, no, but it's heaven. We'll have like the dong we want. Oh, okay. Can we play music? But you kind of have low self-esteem, so you might have a really small one or something. You, you, like I go to heaven and I'm like, oh, I, I don't deserve a good dong. <laughs> That's great. Can we play music? <laughs> um, yeah. We can play liars. Those liars. Yeah. Right? I bet you music would be where it's at because yeah. like, there's just you know an infinite possibility. We could we could. It's so, okay. For this eon, we're going to write a song that lasts for a million yeah. years. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've hit it on the head. Because everything else you think about is so, you don't need to use the bathroom. You know, you don't need sex. No, not in heaven. Like, it's over. Yeah. But, because you, you don't have to have babies in heaven, right? right? But music. Yeah. Music is eternal. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. And art, maybe. <laughs> so there were two things that were very important to me, I think. One was the sort of beginning of my journey, which was a This American Life episode titled Fear of Sleep. There's actually uh, an early This American Life. Uh, this American Life recently, it's, it's not so great. I feel like Ira Glass has sort of walked away from This American Life, and it's just not as good anymore. But in the beginning, it was great. And there's one episode called Fear of Sleep, and it's great. And Ira Glass actually talks about his own fear of sleep. And he, he interviews a lot of other people. So that was sort of like the beginning of my awareness of this whole thing. What really cured me, so to speak, was I was doing research, phenomenological research, uh, during my doctorate, and I was reading other phenomenological studies to get an example of how people wrote up their data and how they reported their phenomenological research. And there was one study on death anxiety, and they, the researchers had interviewed a bunch of people with death, death anxiety, different kinds, and there were all these different quotes and paragraphs of like quotes. And, and I, so I was just reading it just to get an example of this sort of research, and I found myself just riveted by these descriptions of people, real people, talking about death anxiety in the exact same way that I would have talked about it. Oh, <laughs> I mean, wow. it was like word for word. I'm like, holy crap. Right. You're saying exactly what's <laughs> in my head. And that must have been a, a, a good feeling, like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. But the weird thing was, I'm a shrink. I know I'm not alone. Right. I know that there are other people. But there was something about feeling these other person's descriptions of it in that moment, or it hit me at the right time or something. But it was a magical moment. And I remember feeling this shift happening inside of me. So before, and I remember I was laying in bed reading that study. Before that moment, I probably thought about and, and was in de- partial despair about mm-hmm. the death of everybody 10 times, 20 times a day. It didn't ruin my life. I'm a fairly happy person. But it would just sort of pop into my head. Right. Like, oh, yep, you're going to be annihilated one day, and it's all going to be for nothing. <laughs> and, and, and then I read that study, and then from then on... I don't know. I just sort of feel at peace with death. And that brings me to the last point here is because death is universal, in a way, we all have to grieve our own deaths. You know, On Death and Dying, the book you were looking at on the shelf, that is a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in which she worked at a hospital with terminally ill patients. And the five stages of grief, that was, that was actually the five stages of accepting one's own death. Right. And so she interviewed all these people who knew they were going to die, and she just saw all these you know, commonalities among them. 
and people would have to grieve the fact that they were going to die soon. And yet, we're all going to die. So we all have to grieve, I think, our own eventual demise, whether we go to heaven or not. And that process is like any other kind of grief. You know, when your spouse dies, you don't just intellectually tell yourself, well, you know, life goes on. <laughs> you know, you got to feel the feelings. You got you to gotta wrestle with it. It's depressing. Right. My wife is gone. That's depressing. I got to talk about it. I got to feel the feelings. I have to walk away from it. I have to come back to it. I have to talk about it with other people. I have to hear from other people who have lost their spouses. I've got to, you know, at the anniversary of her death, I'm going to feel those feelings. I'm going to go through pictures of that, you know, we were together. And so it's the same with our own death. We have to grieve those feelings. We have to experience it. We have to go face-to-face with that in whatever way we do. Maybe your friend goes face-to-face with it by jumping out of airplanes. And it's harder than it sounds, and it takes time. And I feel like that's what I did. I feel like my body was wanting to grieve my death, and so that's why 20 times a day it was like popping into my head, and I was feeling down about it, and I was like trying to walk away from it, and I was hearing from other stories, and then finally... I was ready to like really get a good experience and I read this whole study this one night for, you know, I don't know, a couple of hours and it was like this final step in my overall grieving process that I'm telling you began when I was a teenager. I've been thinking about my right. death since I was wow. 14 or something. And Yikes. wrestling with that sort of, you know, depressing or scary mm-hmm. or whatever, what does it mean that we're all going to die, you know? And so... After that point, and this is a 30-year process, I feel at this point in my life for the past two or three years, for some reason, I can't tell you why, at peace with the fact that I'm going to be dead. And it's evidenced by, I still think about my death 20 times a day, mm-hmm. but it doesn't depress me. I it's see. just sort of like, yeah, okay, I'm going to die. And what do I, what do I want to do today that's in line with my overall meaning of life so that I've lived the life that I want to live. I, you know, I don't want to be on my deathbed. That's why I became a therapist. I, at the age of 24, I was thinking about being on my deathbed, and I was like, what do I want to look back on? I don't, I, don't want to have, I don't want to have wasted my life, but I need a job. So what job can I do that I won't feel like a waste? It's like a waste of my time, and I thought being a therapist would actually be a good use of my efforts at, at work. You know, I think there's two kinds of people in the world. There's a the kind that thinks, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to die. What happens if I die, like, you know, over there? And, oh, how embarrassing. Like, people are going to find my body and then, like, people are going to grieve me and I'm not going to be around tomorrow. And it's just horror. And then the other kind of person that's like, huh, that's the one mess I don't have to clean up. And they go about their existence happily. <laughs> It's the one mess I don't have to clean up. Yeah. Yeah. It's like basically they're like, yeah, I don't have to be there for that one. (laughs) Well, where are you on this scale? Oh, I, like I said, I have, um, I have certainly had, you know, periods of time where I was, um, you know, wrestling with, with the thoughts of, oh, you know, it's life is so, but, but the thing for me, my fear is not accomplishing before I die. That's my fear. And that's why I'm more obsessed with 
oh man, I've made bad, some bad health choices over the years. What could I do to repair that? What could I do to extend this? Because I'm perfectly aware you, about... What would you need to accomplish so that you would feel okay dying? Um, uh, you know, something on the level like Einstein... Yeah. Be permanently remembered by all of humanity okay. for my... <laughs> Let's say that doesn't happen. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, seriously, like, that's the problem, is in my head, I want to be... I, I want to be adored. Right. So that's why when I talk with people about this, because I talk with clients about it, I will say... Let's keep talking about this. Because as you're talking about it out loud, you're like, well, this is kind of dumb. Like, I, I want to be Einstein, and then I'm okay w- with dying. That is dumb. I want to be better than Einstein. Yeah. And <laughs> until I achieve that. So essentially what you're saying is you're going to be terrified of death until the day you die, <laughs> you know, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but there is another way. Or you're going to be reaching for the stars when you should be reaching for something that's attainable. And so I'm not judging what you're saying. I'm just saying that there's a possibility that if you keep wrestling with what you're wrestling with and really talking it out with people and saying it out loud, that you might have a purpose in life that you can feel good about uh, before you die and you'll be okay with it. I'm not saying it well. But, you know, things that you're already doing maybe. Maybe you're already doing what you're what you believe in your heart is your true purpose in life. Yeah, it's just, I think what happens is some personality types, I'm not saying they're good, they're probably more problematic. Like, take Alexander the Great. Probably what motivated him in life wasn't altruism and, you know, it was was probably uh, like, how big could I be? I'm guessing I didn't know the guy. (laughs) And I think some good chunks of history get carved by that kind of ridiculously stupid drive. Absolutely. And I am on this weird thing where I'm like, man, I lack the actual drive, <laughs> but I have the desire. <laughs> and so it's like, it's one of those, like, ah, you know, I, I just need to do something great. And, you know, I know that it's, it's, it's part of the irrationality of the human brain. But at the same time, like you were saying about it's, you can't reason your way out of some things. Yeah. It, in my head, if you ask me, like, well, what's wrong with dying tomorrow? I'm like, well, nothing technically except that I haven't accomplished the thing. Right. You know? And my guess is, again, no judgment for me. I have no idea. But if you really walked yourself ahead in the, to the future, say, five years from now, you achieve some version of what you would define as that glorious moment. Right. In all likelihood, that would not cure you. Oh, absolutely not. Right. So No, it would make it worse. That's why I was saying, like, wait, I could do so much more. Right. So for clients and for myself, I recommend really wrestling with it, really thinking about it. And I think at the end of the journey for myself, I have found a place, you know, people, people will often ask me and have asked me over the years, you know, what do you want to achieve in life? Well, since I've been wrestling with my own death since I was 13, I have been living my life as if literally this week might be my last week. Right. And so I don't want to say to myself, oh, I, I never achieved that one thing that I wanted to achieve. So, you know, I probably earlier today thought, well, if I die tomorrow, I've, I've lived a good life. Right. I had fun. I had family. I had friends. 
I try to make a difference in the world, in my profession and in my personal life. I, you know, thought about things. I contributed in my tiny little way to society. And yeah, there's more that could be done, but I feel good with what I've accomplished. I've probably been saying that some version of that since I was like 26, you know? And it's not a narcissistic thing, like I believe I'm this awesome person. In some ways, it's coming to terms with the fact that I know I'm one of 7 billion people on the planet. And there's only so much that so much impact I'm going to have on, on you know, the universe. And I'm okay with the very small little impact I've had. Uh, in some ways, grieving our death is grieving the insignificance of our lives. And I have often, you know, come to realize just how small I am right. and how insignificant my life is. And greatness even if I achieved super greatness is whatever possible from my perspective, you know, my standing is just also completely insignificant. You know, the one thing that I will say that I might kind of regret if I did die tomorrow is there, I, there are, I have a list from the listeners, from the patrons of like, a thousand topics. I said to the patrons, you know, email me. We'll, we'll always do patron emails. Well, a lot of our patrons have emailed and like, there's such a long list of future episodes (laughs) and I want to get to them. They're all fascinating rabbit holes. I want to go down and I would kind of regret not having uh, (laughs) done those episodes. You do realize if, if you were to pass away tomorrow, I would take this show in a completely different direction. What direction would that be? It would be on sex and sexing. <laughs> sex and sexing? Yeah. Wow. Um, the last thing I'll say is having secure attachments. It, it, it's research shows that the, the more secure you are in your attachments, you know, with your loved ones, mm. the, the more secure you feel in those relationships, the more attuned you are to each other, the stronger those relationships the less likely you are to have death anxiety. My hypothesis about that is that the more anxious we are just about our attachments, the more just generally anxious we are in general anyway, mm. and we might start you know, have being, having a fear of sleep or having a fear of death or having a fear of spiders. The more secure... I mean, you know, imagine when you're a child yep. and you're afraid, you run to your mom and she hugs you and holds you and you don't feel afraid anymore, even though the spider still exists and you know, yeah. whatever you were afraid, just being close and cuddling with your loved one reduces, you know, all those hormones so that you feel better. It's the same in adulthood. Yep. The more secure you feel, just the, the more balanced your brain is and the less likely you're going to focus and ruminate on some thing that scares you. It's like you need a, a designated mom every day next to you. Yeah. Like, could you pay someone? It's like, listen, I don't need any physical stuff. I just, I just need a mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're professional cuddlers. <laughs> are they really? Yeah. They're oh, really. You didn't know are. about this? No. Yeah, there's professional oh, cuddlers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you can you pay someone to cuddle with you. Oh man, I, can they also tell me it's okay that I scrape my knee? It's what? That, can they also tell me that it's okay that I <laughs> yeah. scraped my knee? From what I understand, that is a, that is part of the service. Well, that does it for this patron-only episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us, patrons. We love you very much. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. <laughs>